Okay. So if we could begin by you telling us your name, kind of the your whole theological, kind of academic training, and background experience. Okay. So my name is Peter S. Williams. I'm a Christian philosopher by academic training uh, with a broad interest in Christian apologetics uh, in general as well. I publish a, a number of books in the area, uh, having studied at three different UK universities, studying philosophy, uh, working in the area of uh, church youth work for a number of years, and then a number of years working with a Christian educational charity here in the UK, and I also work part-time now for a Christian University College based out in Norway, uh, for whom I do course development and writing materials in English for online courses and so on. So give me some of the titles in your books. Okay, so recent books of mine include a, a book called C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists uh, that put uh, Lewis's journey to Christianity from atheism into conversation with the neo-atheist uh, authors like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and so on. Uh, a, a, a textbook on philosophy uh, from an explicitly Christian viewpoint called A Faithful Guide to Philosophy. And um, some of my older books they include a, a book on uh, the historical Jesus called Understanding Jesus uh, and a book called A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism. We just came from filming with A.C. Grayley. Mm. How would you... Uh, respond to Mr. Grayling's position on the God argument, etc. Mm. Yeah, indeed, I had the privilege of uh, debating a little bit with Professor Grayling uh, on a UK radio program on Christian radio here uh, when his uh, most recent book on that issue came out. And we discussed um, a version of the cosmological argument and of the, the design argument, talking about the fine tuning argument. Uh, and it just seems to me, really, that um, Professor Green didn't really understand the argument that I, that I was making. Um, so he was uh, critiquing what I would consider a straw man version of the arguments, rather than the, uh, the, the way in which a contemporary Christian philosopher would put the argument. Recreate that argument, tell me what your position was, or if that'll do it. Sure, well, let's look at the fine-tuning argument. So I have drawn the work uh, of um, recent work in um, design detection done by the folks within the intelligent design movement, particularly William Dembski, who lays out this criteria uh, with two elements to it for when we can reasonably infer that something is the product of design. Uh, and he points out that not only do we have to point to something that's in very, very improbable, but also something that hits an independently knowable pattern or specification. Uh, and I use a, a homely example to oh, illustrate this. Sorry, I can't see it. Yeah. There we go. Okay. I'll start again. Yeah. Yeah. I just want you to look at it. Go ahead. So there are, there are two elements to uh, a criteria for when we can reasonably infer design. And that is saying we point to something that's very, very improbable, but it also has to be something that hits an independently knowable pattern. So here's an illustration. Uh, if you see someone at a, a cash machine, a hole-in-the-wall machine, and they enter a, a four-digit number into the machine, and the machine gives them money, you don't think to yourself, oh, they were very lucky. You think to yourself, they probably knew the, the personal identification number for one of the accounts that you can access through such a machine. 
And that's because not only is the event of entering a number into that machine very improbable, that's one possible number out of all the possible combinations of numbers of that length that there could be, but also that there's an independently given pattern that they've hit uh, with that number. It's not just any old number of that improbability that will work to give you the money. Now, similarly, with the fine-tuning of the universe, there's basic laws and parameters of physical laws that are necessary conditions for there being anything living at all, anything even um, chemistry happening, anything even there being matter in existence. Um, And these are prerequisites for there being life. Um, Not only is that combination of laws and constants very, very improbable, one set out of all the possible sets, but the one that exists just happens to hit the independently given pattern of allowing there to be complex things such that life can exist, rather than there being nothing interesting at all. Uh, and so um, the odds are, are, are astro- beyond astronomical in the fine-tuning sense, uh, much, uh, much beyond the improbability that's involved in getting money out of a, an account for a hole in the wall machine. But it's the same kind of specified complexity that's at that's a, that's a work there. Uh, and when I discussed this argument with Professor Grayling, um, he didn't seem to get that two-pronged combination of, of rules. And he would draw an analogy with with saying, well, it's, you know, it's very, very improbable that I exist because my parents had to meet, and they're, they're, you know, my grandparents all had to meet, a whole line of people uh, had to meet. So it's very, very improbable that I exist. But you wouldn't say that, you know, my existence is by intelligent design, because if I hadn't existed, then someone else might have existed. Well, exactly. Um, It's very, very unlikely that an individual human being exists, but their existence doesn't hit an independently given or knowable pattern in the way that um, the whole of the wall machine or the fine-tuning of the universe has this, this functionally independent pattern that it hits as well. So he was just focusing on one half of the criteria for design inference, I mean, it's very unlikely. And, and pointing out quite rightly that just because an event is very unlikely, that doesn't prove it's designed. But then the argument didn't go like that. The argument was it's an event that's very, very unlikely and which hits an independently given pattern. And in such situations, it's rational to infer design. So he, he was just a straw manning the argument by focusing on, on half of what was being argued and ignoring the other half, really. We're focusing on the nuns in the growth in America, but we're looking at the nuns uh, asking the rhetorical question, does the UK forecast where America is going spiritually? Mm. Give us the spiritual landscape of the UK and then answer the question. Sure. Well, I can, I can give you some fairly specific answers on this because there was a recent uh, poll done in, in the UK by a polling organization called YouGov um, who showed... Um, Differences amongst different age groups uh, in the UK and their spiritual beliefs. Uh, so, for example, for people uh, 60 years and over, uh, the majority of those people believe in uh, God or at least some kind of greater spiritual power. Uh, it's something uh, in the region of 65-70% of people uh, believe in some kind of higher being, as it were. When you come down the age groups to the uh, sort of 18 to 24 uh, age group, that number drops to about 25% of people believing in God 
or some kind of a higher power. So you drop from a, a majority in the over 60s to a, a, a sort of one in four minority in the in the under 30s sort of uh, age category. Uh, and again, um, in terms of saying that they have a particular religion that they would self-identify with, the over 60s, the majority of them would self-identify in the UK with being a Christian. Uh, whether they would, uh, would be considered... Uh, by uh, many Christians to be uh, sort of practicing, actively practicing Christian, they would self-identify with the Christian tradition at least. And that is not at all the case uh, with the under 30s uh, age group, uh, sort of 18 to 24, 25 age group. Uh, would again, the minority of them would identify with Christianity and tradition, and indeed a large group of them would sign up to this this nuns category, saying, "Well, I don't identify with any particular religious tradition." Uh, that doesn't mean they're necessarily an atheist in that nuns category, uh, although many of them are. An increasing uh, portion of young people in the country are uh, atheistic in outlook, um, but they certainly don't. Uh, identify with Christianity as a religious tradition, any religious tradition in particular. Um, they may be agnostic, uh, but a large percentage of them don't even believe in some kind of a higher power of any kind. Why? What, what, why? And what's the contributing reason? There are a lot of contributing uh, reasons, I, I think. Uh, and I think some of those contributing reasons have to do with the way that the church itself has handled changes in culture uh, in the last uh, 100 years or so. Um, that large segments of the church have reacted to, um, say, sort of German uh, liberal theology in the 19th century, uh, German biblical criticism that was sceptical about the historicity of certain Bible stories or that was sceptical about um, being able to believe in the miraculous when it's mentioned in the Bible, have reacted to that kind of tradition um, by coming into uh, a sort of pietistic response, a sort of retreat yeah, into a, a sort of safe Christian bubble uh, where we try and sort of wall off uh, ourselves and our young people from those dangerous uh, counter-Christian ideas uh, and just kind of try and provide a, a comfortable, safe Christian subculture uh, for ourselves and for our children. Uh, the problem with that is that people don't stay within a Christian subculture. It, that, that is a failure to uh, train people to engage with the ideas in the, in, in the culture and to go toe-to-toe uh, at an academic level with those ideas uh, to be equipped to think through one's reaction uh, to such scepticism when you inevitably meet it when you, say, go to university. And, of course, uh, over the last decades, an increasing proportion of the population now goes to university. So I think it was something like one in ten people, say, in the 1950s, would go to university. These days, the government aims at about 50% of the population going to university. Um, so people are going to meet these sceptical ideas um, in the media, uh, which uh, becomes through the growth of different mediums of media much more part of our lives than, than ever before, um, year by year. Um, the media is, tends to be dominated by people who have gone through the university system and uh, tend to be uh, much more sort of liberal uh, in those theological terms, uh, or decidedly sceptical uh, in theological terms, uh, than um, orthodox uh, Christianity. 
Uh, and since the media has a growing influence, through that uh, root of the media, those sceptical ideas are going to, to find people. And I think it is, um, it is unwise to try and protect Christian youth from those dangers rather than equipping them to deal with it head on. Um, that Christian youth work uh, has, in a lot of Christian traditions, unfortunately, become about entertaining Christian youth uh, to, in order to try and retain the numbers and to uh, keep you know, Christian youth in church rather than out there in the big bad world, rather than equipping them, discipling them, training them, giving them something that's challenging and countercultural by trying to give them what ends up being a, a sort of um, pietistic, safe, new certificate, watered-down version, Christianized version of the culture around us, which does nothing to really fortify you uh, against um, those uh, counter-Christian ideas and uh, attitudes that you're going to meet when you get into university, when you engage with media, when you go to the workplace. I don't uh, understand how we can catechize Christian youth with the paradigm that's being used today. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 a basic sermon on Sunday. I mean, I, give us your viewpoint on the way mm-hmm. discipleship and biblical indoctrination is being done and why it's failing so miserably in the UK as well as in America. Sure. I mean, one has to generalize here, of course. Of course, there are examples of good practice, but but I think there are are too many examples of bad practice. I think we need to um, be willing to rethink through issues like the fact that, that the whole sort of Sunday school for youth movement uh, which did uh, great things back in back in in the day in, in teaching literacy to children uh, and so on then be- has become in our modern world a, a way in which we we hive off our young people on a Sunday from seeing Christian adults and their parents engaging in their religious beliefs so instead of seeing uh, models of adults actually following Christ and learning about Christ and worshipping Christ and so on, they, we hive off our youth into their own groups, only meeting their own uh, age groups and a few leaders. Uh, we tend to then teach them Bible stories, primarily having to do with um, using those Bible stories to teach them some morals um, so that we try and encourage them to behave well, Christianly, uh, rather than, as, as you say, catechizing, teaching them a Christian worldview, teaching them how to uh, engage and counter with non-Christian views and attitudes in the culture around them, um, and seeing Christian adults doing that. Um, one thing I appreciate looking at the, the Christian church in America from a UK position is the way in which Sunday school in America would mean adults going to church on a, on a Sunday afternoon often and actually having uh, in prolonged teaching that's not simply the teaching that you get through a Sunday church service sermon or homily um, to see uh, adults engaged in uh, thinking through their faith 
uh, in regards to their workplace environment, in regards to the media, in regards to the ideas out there in culture. Uh, I think it's a great thing, and that's something that's not done uh, in the UK. Uh, again, in, UK, in, in terms of training our, our, our ministers and vicars in the church in the UK, I, I don't really know of, of any ministry training program that includes Christian apologetics or philosophy of religion uh, amongst the training for Christian leaders. And if Christian leaders aren't being trained in that area, it's hardly surprising that Christian laity don't get trained uh, in this area. Isn't there a contrast between Professor Grayling and many of his colleagues and their training and the average, and we repudiate it, but uh, they're far more trained than clerics? Right, absolutely. And if you're looking at uh, even the folks in the New Atheist movement who are generally generally speaking, outside of their area of professional expertise. Um, Grayling is a rare example of, of uh, a new atheist who is at least trained in the area of philosophy. When he's talking about philosophy, religion, ideas, he is someone who has, has read at least some of the, the great philosophers and knows something of that uh, tradition of the conversation. Whereas when you're talking about someone like Richard Dawkins, for example, you're talking about someone who's trained in zoology, trying to talk about metaphysics and theology uh, without any formal training in it. Um, but then, as I've just said, when uh, a Christian minister wants to try and engage with that conversation, they too are speaking outside of their area of expertise. Then you know, They may have done a course that trains them to read some New Testament Greek, to have a little understanding of systematic theology, some pastoral care. There's, there's lots of that we call upon our ministers to do, uh, and we put them through a sort of undergraduate level training, and then release them into, into the world. Um, maybe we should you know, uh, aim to support our, our, our ministers and so on to be able to go and get some more postgraduate training, uh, to get part-time uh, in, in work training, to have uh, sabbaticals uh, to go and learn about uh, really important cultural issues that they think are affecting their congregations and so on, and not simply to be drawing upon uh, the laurels of their um, training uh, in uh, clicker school or, or whatever, and the, the reading that they manage to do in preparing for the sermon every week, uh, amongst the business of, of also doing pastoral care and the business organisational side of running a church and, and all of these things that we, we call upon our ministers to do. Um, perhaps we, we expect too much simply from the, you know, the professionalised ministry as, as well, that part of Christian discipleship uh, of the releasing of, of the gifts of people in the congregations is, is to, to look at our congregations and see the ways in which we can release folks who have um, training in, in different professional areas to, to to think about the, the integration of their Christian discipleship and their, their worldly knowledge to baptise that and to help other Christians to see the world through their, their expertise and, and to, to spread that about uh, within our congregations. Can you give us a synopsis of C.S. Lewis versus in the New Atheists? Yeah, sure. So it's just fascinating because a lot of today's new atheists are basically one generation removed, academically speaking, from C.S. Lewis. 
uh, a lot of today's neo-atheists in particular, did their postdoctoral studies at Oxford University under the tutorship of folks who would have been professors in the day of C.S. Lewis when he was a professor as well, that he would have rubbed shoulders with uh, folks like H.J. Eyre and David Strawson and so on. Uh, and one uh, movement within early 20th century philosophy that, that, that sort of hangs over today's uh, thinking about religion uh, is the logical positivist movement that in the, the early 20th century, particularly under A.J. Eyre at Oxford, um, had a very sort of scientific understanding of, uh, well, at that day, uh, when language even meant anything, they were philosophy was, was very taken up with the conditions for when language is meaningful rather than being nonsensical. And AJS said language means something when it's true by definition, or you can check it out kind of scientifically with your senses, at least potentially. Um, so if I were to say the moon is made of cheese, you might think, well, that's a silly thing to say. But it is a meaningful thing to say, because at least you would know what experiment to do with your spoon if you found yourself on the moon to find out whether or not it's made of cheese. But if I say something like, that rainbow is beautiful, or the Holocaust was immoral, or there is a god, A.J. Eyre would have said, you're, you're speaking nonsense, because none of those things are true by definition. And, you know, what empirical thing could you do to check whether or not those statements were true or false? So none at all. So they're just meaningless. Now, that movement was very short-lived and, and fairly quickly died amongst philosophers who, who noticed, of course, that that very conditional rule of when language was meaningful didn't pass its own test. That rule of, of when language is meaningful wasn't true by definition and isn't something that you can prove experimentally. So by its own lights, it was meaningless. <laughs> it didn't pass its own test. So language, the conditions for language being meaningful must, must be broader than that. But what's happened, uh, and what continues to influence folks like Richard Dawkins and so on in the atheist movement, is they've taken that old... Um, criteria of meaningfulness of language, and they just shifted it to a criteria of, of knowledge. And hence we get scientism, this view that science is the only way to know anything, that empirical knowledge is the be-all and end-all of knowledge. Uh, and if science can't prove it, then it can't be known, or you can just discount it from our knowledge base. Uh, and that very narrow understanding of knowledge. Again, it's, it's self-contradictory because it's not an understanding of knowledge that you can prove with empirical methodology, but it's an understanding of knowledge that, that I find in meeting students in, in schools and universities all over the country very influenced by. It's something that permeates through our media, permeates through the whole new, new atheist movement, uh, and I think it's one of the uh, the biggest kind of influencing factors on people being sceptical about religious claims because they think science is the way to know things, science tells us the truth about the world, science doesn't directly tell us anything about God therefore we kind of discount God So what are you concluding in C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist? Well I 
conclude that uh, Lewis was never taken in by this logical positivism, even as an atheist, he argued against it. And it's interesting that when he was an atheist, one of the major reasons he would give for his atheism was the, the problem of evil. But that means saying that there really is something that's objectively evil in the world. That's, of course, not something you can say if you agree with A.J. Eyre that moral talk and other kinds of metaphysical talk is just nonsense. There is one to say, no, it makes sense to say that is evil, and that's one of the reasons I don't believe in God. But then thinking through that more deeply, he came to see, well, if I'm saying there's something that really is evil, there must be some objective, sort of transcendent standard by which I'm judging things to fall short, to not match up to the standard of of good. But where do I find a, an objective standard of good if the world is nothing but a, uh, a purposeless, uh, materialistic uh, collection of bits and bobs jostling around by the laws of physics? It doesn't seem to make sense at all. And so actually thinking about his primary argument against God started thinking him into, well, actually, there must be more to the world than just the material, just the scientifically accessible. There must be something beyond the world that is a, a, a standard of, of goodness. Uh, and actually, Lewis took seriously philosophical arguments for God, metaphysical arguments for God, not only the, the moral argument that he famously explained in, the, in the, uh, his book Mere Christianity, for example, uh, but also... Uh, particularly the argument of rationality uh, that a friend of his called Owen Barfield discussed with him uh, that he discusses uh, there famously in one of the chapters of uh, his book, uh, Miracles uh, and Lewis argues about well, again, how could you trust human rationality to be telling us the truth about the world if at the same time you try and explain away in a sense and reduce what's going on in our minds, what we think, to something that fits within the categories allowable by a materialistic, naturalistic, purposeless worldview. You end up explaining the rational in terms of the, the non-rational. And does that ultimately work? He thought not, and he thought ultimately he pointed to our minds reflecting a transcendent mind, that if the fundamental reality was a mind it makes sense to trust our minds as a finite reflection of that greater logos out there and so on. So Lewis was pushed towards a belief in a, in a personal God by taking philosophical arguments seriously, but the new atheists won't take those arguments seriously because they have this narrow scientific understanding of, of knowledge. So you know, Catholic, uh, Stephen Hawking's in his a recent book, uh, The Grand Design, opens that book by declaring that philosophy is dead and that scientists have become the torchbearers in our search for knowledge about reality. But having dismissed philosophy, Hawking and his co-writer then spend the majority of the rest of that book discussing philosophical issues <laughs> about uh, where our scientific understanding of reality fits with metaphysical beliefs about what kind of worldview best makes sense of those, whether or not it's a belief in God or a belief in naturalism. But those are philosophical issues. They're informed by the scientific conversation, but they, they really hit the ground once the scientific conversation has finished. 
uh, and yet they want to have that philosophical conversation whilst dismissing philosophy. It's hardly surprising that you then end up with very amateur philosophy happening. Do you, uh, what's your prediction of the nuns phenomenon in America? Do you see America moving like Great Britain spiritually? It does seem that America is, is following the UK and the kind of European uh, situation more broadly. Um, I think the, the positive spin one could give on that is that it would seem that people are, are moving away from any sort of cultural Christianity and uh, expressing uh, an identification with Christianity out of a sort of a cultural sense of well I'm born into this culture and so of course I'm a Christian or well I, I was baptised as a child so yes I'm a Christian uh, and it's those uh, those people who uh, have uh, an, an intrinsic spiritual belief in Christ that actually means something to the way they live their lives uh, who now express a Christian identity uh, and so um, if you just extrapolated simply the graphs about church attendance, say, you, you end up saying, as I've seen newspaper articles doing, that you know, there will be no there'll be no church in the UK by the year twenty sixty five. Because you just extrapolate uh, the decline in, in church attendance and go, oh, extrapolate, okay, there'll be no Christians in the twenty second century. Um, but actually of course there are elements, parts of the church that are growing. Um, they tend to be the, the evangelical, uh, the charismatic parts of the church, uh, certain uh, Catholic churches, uh, particularly through um, immigration uh, from Europe, uh, have uh, sort of kept their levels over the last few decades. Uh, so there are, there are parts of the church that are not declining or are indeed growing. Uh, and those parts are very uh, actively uh, committed parts. So these two graphs will overlap at some stage, and what you'll have is it is a Britain and a Europe with a much smaller, in sort of numbers terms, but, but actively committed and growing Christian community. And Christianity will be much more in the position of the early days of Christianity, where Christians were a minority religious group at odds with the culture around them, not in a position of, of power, uh, but uh, of growing uh, a vibrant faith uh, that turned the world upside down. We are focusing also on the none other, uh, Acts 4.12, Jesus Christ. Why is Jesus so divisive and yet so influential? Why is he the attention of the arts and the world itself. Yeah. On the one hand, one of the recent phenomena you could say about people's interaction with Jesus is the growth of people who don't even believe that Jesus existed. And again, this is particularly a growing belief amongst the younger segment of uh, our country. Uh, indeed, uh, I think last year at Southampton University, I live in Southampton on the south coast of the UK, and the CU there did a survey of students, asked them, you know, what are your questions about Christianity? 
the number one question about Christianity amongst students at Southampton University, which is one of the good universities in the UK, uh, was, did Jesus even exist? So that level of historical scepticism, which is something that again has been pushed by uh, movements like the New Atheism, uh, internet scepticism, things like the, the Zeitgeist movie on YouTube and so on, um, would be laughed out of court by serious classical and historical scholars of the area, Christian or non-Christian, but is being deeply influential. Uh, and yet, on the other hand, it seems everybody wants uh, a piece of Jesus. Uh, you can certainly find you know, common atheist voices saying, you know, I don't take the religious baggage of Jesus, but I, you know, his morals, his ethics, Richard Dawkins uh, what, uh, says that uh, you know, he admires Jesus' ethical teaching, he thinks he was truly radical, and he kind of preceded uh, Martin Luther King and, and Gandhi's kind of teachings, uh, and that there was something to be admired about Jesus. He just wants to abstract that from the supernatural claims. And that's where it gets divisive, of course, because Jesus didn't just come and give some nice ethical teaching that you can think, oh, yeah, that's nice advice, I'll, I'll follow that. He did, if you take the historical documents that we have at all seriously, he did put himself and our relationship to him at the centre of his teaching. His teaching wasn't about what we should do, his teaching was primarily about how we should relate to him as the key point of the kingdom of God, as, as the gate to relationship with God, as God's appointed Messiah, uh, as uh, a crucial figure in our own spirituality. Uh, and um, so you have to face up to those claims of Christ, you know, as, as Lewis, back to, to Lewis again, saw, uh, particularly having read the works of G.K. Chesterton that were very influential upon Lewis, uh, that uh, you can't just say Jesus was a good moral teacher, therefore, that you either have to say he was, you know, egotistical and within his cultural terms blasphemous, if he, if he sincerely meant what he said but was wrong about it, well, if he didn't mean it, he was, he was you know, a perfidious con artist of some kind. Um, or maybe, just maybe, it was actually true. Um, and then you have to end up being orientating your whole life around him. Lock, stock, and barrel. Um, but uh, if you take the historical information we have about him seriously, he won't do just to say, oh, he, he said some nice moral things about turning the other cheek and loving your neighbour, and that's lovely, but I don't need to buy into all the theological baggage about that. And of course, you can agree with the moral teaching without, without believing he was who Christians think he was. Um, but it, it's too simplistic just to, to dismiss the way in which Jesus himself couched his teaching about himself mattering within our spiritual lives. Um, there's something more awkward about the historical Jesus than that. Is Jesus the only way to heaven? 
Jesus the only way to heaven? I, I think so. Now that brings up all sorts of, of questions uh, about how people access Jesus fairly. What about people who existed before he came to earth? What about people who've never heard? Uh, what about uh, people who grew up grew up in societies, um, say, you know, a communist society, uh, who um, veil true information about Jesus from people so that they never uh, get an understanding of, of who he is? Uh, there are a multiplicity of, of, of answers that Christians will give to those questions, and there's a number of different theological routes to go, all of which have in common the central Christian point that God is a God of love and justice and will deal fairly with people. Uh, and so um, it, it is never the case that people are going to be excluded from the possibility of eternal life, heaven, with God, through Christ, in Christ, simply because they're ignorant about Christ. Uh, people are, are, are not... Uh, looked down upon or condemned by God for honest ignorance. It, it is one's honest reaction to what one actually knows about God and Christ that matters, as far as I'm concerned. I, I think that's what the New Testament shows. Uh, and then there are slightly different answers that Christians will give about um, how and when people get that knowledge, and whether it in this life, whether it's possible to begin that knowledge in the afterlife, before the creation of the new heaven, the new earth, and so on. But all Christians agree that God is fair, that you're not condemned for ignorance, uh, and that what actually matters is your reaction in knowledge of Christ and his claims that matters. Okay, I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Can you bring the trees in closer so that when you shoot over my shoulder... We can get more of a television effect on left and right. Just bring them in. It'll make him a little hotter, if it's okay. I, but that, get him in the picture, both of them. Yeah. Come together, yeah. And then that one. Very good. I'm going to ask you a couple more questions because we've got a good lock on you. I'm trying to be short. If I say something a bit too long, you won't no, try to no, shorten no, down something. No, that's, no, that's what post editing is all about. We're good. I and then if you just get some with my camera, it's right behind you. Um, I let me look at this side here. Okay, so we'll keep rolling. Okay. So if you would give give me the the leading atheists of Oxford and Cambridge that were influential in your opinion. Influential upon uh, the new atheists and those who preceded them. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Oxford particularly seems to have been uh, an intellectual hub of the God debate in general uh, in the UK and because of Oxford's position uh, in the world, intellectually in the world. Um, so, thinking through atheists, you go back to, as I was talking about a little earlier, the days of A.J. Eyre and the logical positive movement, and that was sort of the home of, of, of 20th century analytical... And then this philosophy. side... I'm sorry, yeah. sorry, forgive me. I'm doing 360. Okay, yeah. very good. <laughs> Go ahead, excuse me. Uh, AJ Eyre. AJ Eyre, and that's the home of analytical philosophy movement. 
which then, after the fall of logical positivism, did, did broaden out into readdressing again the, the, the traditional concerns, classical philosophy, metaphysically, the big questions about worldview and, and values and the existence of God or not, and worldviews and so on, but now being addressed with, with the, the, the tools of precision that mattered to the analytical philosophy. I would like you to see if you could get one over his shoulder where the kind of, I'm holding his book, his list, and then we've got the author in front of me with a camera contact. Sure. Um, so that, that combination of the precision of analytical philosophy and the traditional concern of classical philosophy for the big worldview questions, then sort of burgeoned uh, within the, the 70s, um, particularly from American Christian philosophers, first of all, folks like Alvin Plantinga, particularly influential here. Uh, but then within the UK, uh, you get folks like, uh, on the atheist side, J.L. Mackey, and on the, the Christian side, Richard Swinburne, is perhaps the most influential British philosopher of religion of, of the last century. Um, uh, Swinburne, like Plantinger in America, it's interesting, both of them have worked at uh, areas of philosophy that are not directly related to Christian concerns, first of all, and have then related them to areas of Christian concerns. So both Plantinger and Swinburne have done a lot of work in, in the area of epistemology, that is, how we know things, what is knowledge, and how do we know what we know and have then applied that thinking into questions about, well, how do we know if there's a God, if Christianity uh, is true? Uh, so they've been influential more broadly within philosophy by addressing these broad concerns, and then have brought people into the conversation about God by applying their thinking in those areas to the whole God question. Good. And today, a lot of uh, influential uh, Christian voices uh, within the God debate uh, connected with, with Oxford University. So, folks like uh, John Lennox, who's a mathematician and philosopher of science at Oxford University, a philosopher called Keith Ward, uh, Alison McGrath, a British theologian, uh, and so on, uh, connections with uh, Oxford University. Uh, so, it still plays a major role uh, within the academic God debate.